Chapter 15 Miracles of the Old Creation The Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He seeth the Father do. John 5, 19 If we open such books as Grimm's Fairy Tales or Ovid's Metamorphoses or the Italian Epics, we find ourselves in a world of miracles so diverse that they can hardly be classified. Beasts turn into men and men into beasts or trees, trees talk, ships become goddesses, and a magic ring can cause tables richly spread with food to appear in solitary places. Some people cannot stand this kind of story, others find it fun. But the least suspicion that it was true would turn the fun into nightmare. If such things really happened, they would, I suppose, show that nature was being invaded, but they would show that she was being invaded by an alien power. The fitness of the Christian miracles, and their difference from these mythological miracles, lies in the fact that they show invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what might be expected to happen when she is invaded not simply by a god, but by the god of nature, by a power which is outside her jurisdiction, not as a foreigner, but as a sovereign. They proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king, her king, and ours. It is this which, to my mind, puts the Christian miracles in a different class from most other miracles. I do not think that it is the duty of a Christian apologist, as many skeptics suppose, to disprove all stories of the miraculous which fall outside the Christian records, nor of a Christian man to disbelieve them. I am in no way committed to the assertion that God has never worked miracles through and for pagans, or never permitted created supernatural beings to do so. If, as Tacitus, Suetonius, and Dion Cassius relate, Vespasian performed two cures, and if modern doctors tell me that they could not have been performed without miracle, I have no objection. But I claim that the Christian miracles have a much greater intrinsic probability in virtue of their organic connection with one another and with the whole structure of the religion they exhibit. If it can be shown that one particular Roman emperor, and, let us admit, a fairly good emperor, as emperors go, once was empowered to do a miracle, we must of course put up with the fact. But it would remain a quite isolated and anomalous fact. Nothing comes of it, nothing leads up to it, it establishes no body of doctrine, explains nothing, is connected with nothing. And this, after all, is an unusually favorable instance of a non-Christian miracle. The immoral and sometimes almost idiotic interferences attributed to gods in pagan stories, even if they had a trace of historical evidence, could be accepted only on the condition of our accepting a wholly meaningless universe. What raises infinite difficulties and solves none will be believed by a rational man only under absolute compulsion. Sometimes the credibility of the miracles is in an inverse ratio to the credibility of the religion. Thus miracles are, in late documents I believe, recorded of the Buddha. But what could be more absurd than that he who came to teach us that nature is an illusion from which we must escape should occupy himself in producing effects on the natural level, that he who comes to wake us from a nightmare should add to the nightmare. The more we respect his teaching, the less we could accept his miracles. But in Christianity, the more we understand what God it is who is said to be present and the purpose for which he is said to have appeared, the more credible the miracles become. That is why we seldom find the Christian miracles denied except by those who have abandoned some part of the Christian doctrine. The mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere, quote, religion. The miracles of Christ can be classified in two ways. The first system yields the classes 1. Miracles of fertility, 2. Miracles of healing, 3. Miracles of destruction, 4. Miracles of dominion over the inorganic, 5. Miracles of reversal, 6. Miracles of perfecting or glorification. The second system, which cuts across the first, yields two classes only. They are 1. Miracles of the old creation, and 2. Miracles of the new creation. I contend that in all these miracles alike, the incarnate God does suddenly and locally something that God has done or will do in general. 
Each miracle writes for us in small letters, something that God has already written, or will write, in letters almost too large to be noticed, across the whole canvas of nature. They focus at a particular point either God's actual or his future operations on the universe. When they reproduce operations we have already seen on the large scale, they are miracles of the old creation. When they focus those which are still to come, they are miracles of the new. Not one of them is isolated or anomalous. Each carries the signature of the God whom we know through conscience and from nature. Their authenticity is attested by the style. Before going any further, I should say that I do not propose to raise the question, which has before now been asked, whether Christ was able to do these things only because he was God or also because he was perfect man. For it is a possible view that if man had never fallen, all men would have been able to do the like. It is one of the glories of Christianity that we can say of this question, it doesn't matter. Whatever may have been the powers of unfallen man, it appears that those of redeemed man will be almost unlimited. Christ, reascending from his great dive, is bringing up human nature with him. Where he goes, it goes too. It will be made like him. If in his miracles he is not acting as the old man might have done before his fall, then he is acting as the new man, every new man, will do, after his redemption. When humanity, born on his shoulders, passes with him up from the cold dark water into the green warm water, and out at last into the sunlight and the air, it also will be bright and colored. Another way of expressing the real character of the miracles would be to say that, though isolated from other actions, they are not isolated in either of the two ways we are apt to suppose. They are not, on the one hand, isolated from other divine acts. They do close and small and, as it were, in focus, what God at other times does so large that men do not attend to it. Neither are they isolated exactly as we suppose from other human acts. They anticipate powers which all men will have when they also are sons of God and enter into that glorious liberty. Christ's isolation is not that of a prodigy, but of a pioneer. He is the first of his kind. He will not be the last. Let us return to our classification, and firstly to miracles of fertility. The earliest of these was the conversion of water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. This miracle proclaims that the God of all wine is present. The vine is one of the blessings sent by Yahweh. He is the reality behind the false god Bacchus. Every year, as part of the natural order, God makes wine. He does so by creating a vegetable organism that can turn water, soil, and sunlight into a juice which will, under proper conditions, become wine. Thus, in a certain sense, he constantly turns water into wine, for wine, like all drinks, is but water modified. Once, and in one year only, God, now incarnate, short-circuits the process, makes wine in a moment, uses earthenware jars instead of vegetable fibers to hold the water, but uses them to do what he is always doing. The miracle consists in the shortcut, but the event to which it leads is the usual one. If the thing happened, then we know that what has come into nature is no anti-natural spirit, no God who loves tragedy and tears and fasting for their own sake, however he may permit or demand them for special purposes, but the God of Israel who has through all these centuries given us wine to gladden the heart of man. Other miracles that fall in this class are the two instances of miraculous feeding. They involve the multiplication of a little bread and a little fish into much bread and much fish. Once in the desert, Satan had tempted him to make bread of stones. He refused the suggestion. The son does nothing except what he sees the father do. Perhaps one may without boldness surmise that the direct change from stone to bread appeared to the son to be not quite in the hereditary style. Little bread into much bread is quite a different matter. Every year God makes a little corn into much corn. The seed is sown and there is an increase. And men say, according to their several fashions, it is the laws of nature, or it is Ceres, it is Adonis, it is the corn king. But the laws of nature are only a pattern. Nothing will come of them unless they can, so to speak, take over the universe as a going concern. And as for Adonis, no man can tell us where he died or when he rose again. 
here at the feeding of the 5,000, is he whom we have ignorantly worshipped, the real corn king, who will die once and rise once at Jerusalem during the term of office of Pontius Pilate. That same day he also multiplied fish. Look down into every bay and almost every river. This swarming, undulating fecundity shows he is still at work, thronging the seas with spawn innumerable. The ancients had a god called Genius, the god of animal and human fertility, the patron of gynecology, embryology, and the marriage bed, the genial bed as they called it after its god Genius. But Genius is only another mask for the god of Israel, for it was he who at the beginning commanded all species to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And now that day at the feeding of the thousands, incarnate God does the same, does close and small under his human hands, a workman's hands, what he has always been doing in the seas, the lakes, and the little brooks. With this we stand on the threshold of that miracle which for some reason proves hardest of all for the modern mind to accept. I can understand the man who denies miracles altogether, but what is one to make of people who will believe other miracles and draw the line at the virgin birth? Is it that for all their lip service to the laws of nature there is only one natural process in which they really believe? Or is it that they think they see in this miracle a slur upon sexual intercourse, though they might just as well see in the feeding of the 5,000 an insult to bakers, and that sexual intercourse is the one thing still venerated in this unvenerating age? In reality, the miracle is no less and no more surprising than any others. Perhaps the best way to approach it is from the remark I saw in one of the most archaic of our anti-God papers. The remark was that Christians believed in a God who had, quote, committed adultery with the wife of a Jewish carpenter, unquote. The writer was probably merely letting off steam and did not really think that God, in the Christian story, had assumed human form and lain with a mortal woman, as Zeus lay with Alchemina. But if one had to answer this person, one would have to say that if you called the miraculous conception divine adultery, you would be driven to find a similar divine adultery in the conception of every child, nay, of every animal too. I am sorry to use expressions which will offend pious ears, but I do not know how else to make my point. In a normal act of generation, the father has no creative function. A microscopic particle of matter from his body and a microscopic particle from the woman's body meet, and with that there passes the color of his hair and the hanging lower lip of her grandfather and the form of humanity in all its complexity of bones, sinews, nerves, liver, and heart, and the form of those pre-human organisms which the embryo will recapitulate in the womb. Behind every spermatozoan lies the whole history of the universe. Locked within it lies no inconsiderable part of the world's future. The weight or drive behind it is the momentum of the whole interlocked event which we call nature up to date. And we know now that the laws of nature cannot supply that momentum. If we believe that God created nature, that momentum comes from Him. The human father is merely an instrument, a carrier, often an unwilling carrier, always simply the last in a long line of carriers, a line that stretches back far beyond his ancestors into pre-human and pre-organic deserts of time, back to the creation of matter itself. That line is in God's hand. It is the instrument by which he normally creates a man, for he is the reality behind both genius and Venus. No woman ever conceived a child, no mare a foal, without him. But once, and for a special purpose, he dispensed with that long line which is his instrument. Once his life-giving finger touched a woman without passing through the ages of interlocked events. Once the great glove of nature was taken off his hand, his naked hand touched her. There was, of course, a unique reason for it. That time he was creating not simply a man, but the man who was to be himself, was creating man anew, was beginning, at this divine and human point, the new creation of all things. The whole soiled and weary universe quivered at this direct injection of essential life, direct, uncontaminated, not drained through all the crowded history of nature. But it would be out of place here to explore the religious significance of the miracle. We are here concerned with it simply as miracle, that and nothing more. As far as concerns the creation of Christ's human nature, 
the grand miracle whereby his divine begotten nature enters into it is another matter, the miraculous conception is one more witness that here is nature's Lord. He is doing now, small and close, what he does in a different fashion for every woman who conceives. He does it this time without a line of human ancestors, but even where he uses human ancestors, it is not the less he who gives life. The bed is barren where that great third party, genius, is not present. The miracles of healing, to which I turn next, are now in a peculiar position. Men are ready to admit that many of them happened, but are inclined to deny that they were miraculous. The symptoms of very many diseases can be aped by hysteria, and hysteria can often be cured by suggestion. It could, no doubt, be argued that such suggestion is a spiritual power, and therefore, if you like, a supernatural power, and that all instances of faith healing are therefore miracles. But in our terminology, they would be miraculous only in the same sense in which every instance of human reason is miraculous. And what we are now looking for is miracles other than that. My own view is that it would be unreasonable to ask a person who has not yet embraced Christianity in its entirety to allow that all the healings mentioned in the Gospels were miracles, that is, that they go beyond the possibilities of human suggestion. It is for the doctors to decide as regards each particular case, supposing that the narratives are sufficiently detailed to allow even probable diagnosis. We have here a good example to what was said in an earlier chapter. So far from belief in miracles depending upon ignorance of natural law, we are here finding for ourselves that ignorance of law makes miracle unascertainable. Without deciding in detail which of the healings must, apart from acceptance of the Christian faith, be regarded as miraculous, we can, however, indicate the kind of miracle involved. Its character can easily be obscured by the somewhat magical view which many people still take of ordinary and medical healing. There is a sense in which no doctor ever heals. The doctors themselves would be the first to admit this. The magic is not in the medicine, but in the patient's body, in the vis medicatrix naturae, recuperative or self-corrective energy of nature. What the treatment does is to stimulate natural functions or to remove what hinders them. We speak for convenience of the doctor, or the dressing, healing a cut. But in another sense, every cut heals itself. No cut can be healed in a corpse. That same mysterious force, which we call gravitational when it steers the planets and biochemical when it heals a live body, is the efficient cause of all recoveries. And that energy proceeds from God in the first instance. All who are cured are cured by Him, not merely in the sense that His providence provides them with medical assistance and wholesome environments, but also in the sense that their very tissues are repaired by the far-descended energy which, flowing from Him, energizes the whole system of nature. But once He did it visibly to the sick in Palestine a man meeting with men. What in its general operations we refer to laws of nature, or once referred to Apollo or Asclepius, thus reveals itself. The power that always was behind all healings puts on a face and hands, hence, of course, the apparent chanciness of the miracles. It is idle to complain that he heals those whom he happens to meet, not those whom he doesn't. To be a man means to be in one place and not in another. The world which would not know him as present everywhere was saved by his becoming local. Christ's single miracle of destruction, the withering of the fig tree, has proved troublesome to some people, but I think its significance is plain enough. The miracle is an acted parable, a symbol of God's sentence on all that is fruitless, and specially, no doubt, on the official Judaism of that age. That is its moral significance. As a miracle, it again does in focus, repeats small and close, what God does constantly and throughout nature. We have seen in the previous chapter how God, twisting Satan's weapon out of his hand, had become, since the fall, the God even of human death. But much more, and perhaps ever since the creation, he has been the god of the death of organisms. In both cases, though in somewhat different ways, he is the god of death, because he is the god of life. The god of human death, because through it, increase of life now comes. 
the god of merely organic death, because death is part of the very mode by which organic life spreads itself out in time and yet remains new. A forest a thousand years deep is still collectively alive because some trees are dying and others are growing up. His human face, turned with negation in its eyes upon that one fig tree, did once what his unincarnate action does to all trees. No tree died that year in Palestine, or any year anywhere, except because God did, or rather ceased to do, something to it. All the miracles which we have considered so far are miracles of the old creation. In all of them we see the divine man focusing for us what the God of nature has already done on a larger scale. In our next class, the miracles of dominion over the inorganic, we find some that are of the old creation and some that are of the new. When Christ stills the storm, he does what God has often done before. God made nature such that there would be both storms and calms. In that way, all storms, except those that are still going on at this moment, have been stilled by God. It is unphilosophical, if you have once accepted the grand miracle, to reject the stilling of the storm. There is really no difficulty about adapting the weather conditions of the rest of the world to this one miraculous calm. I myself can still a storm in a room by shutting the window. Nature must make the best she can of it. And to do her justice, she makes no trouble at all. The whole system, far from being thrown out of gear, which is what some nervous people seem to think a miracle would do, digests the new situation as easily as an elephant digests a drop of water. She is, as I have said before, an accomplished hostess. But when Christ walks on the water, we have a miracle of the new creation— God had not made the old nature, the world before the Incarnation, of such a kind that water would support a human body. This miracle is the foretaste of a nature that is still in the future. The new creation is just breaking in. For a moment it looks as if it were going to spread. For a moment two men are living in that new world. St. Peter also walks on the water, a pace or two. Then his trust fails him and he sinks. He is back in old nature. That momentary glimpse was a snowdrop of a miracle. The snowdrops show that we have turned the corner of the year. Summer is coming but it is a long way off, and the snowdrops do not last long. The miracles of reversal all belong to the new creation. It is a miracle of reversal when the dead are raised. Old nature knows nothing of this process. It involves playing backwards a film that we have always seen played forwards. The one or two instances of it in the Gospels are early flowers, what we call spring flowers, because they are prophetic, although they really bloom while it is still winter. And the miracles of perfecting or of glory, the transfiguration, the resurrection, and the ascension, are even more emphatically of the new creation. These are the true spring, or even the summer, of the world's new year. The captain, the forerunner, is already in May or June, though his followers on earth are still living in the frosts and east winds of old nature, for spring comes slowly up this way. None of the miracles of the new creation can be considered apart from the resurrection and ascension, and that will require another chapter. <laughs>